Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 15 called A New Army. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, I think the Roman fight back against the barbarians in the crisis of the third century was one of the most exciting bits of all Roman history. And we covered the first great Roman victory, the Battle of Nasus in 269, when the Emperor Claudius defeated the Goths, earning him the title Gothicus. But why was the Roman army able to win these victories? And I'd like to spend this episode looking at what changed in the Roman army. But first, I'll read a passage from Edward Gibbon's amazing masterpiece, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, on what he thought was a major improvement in discipline in the Roman army under Claudius and his successor Aurelian. Quote, it was the rigid attention of Aurelian, even to the minutest articles of discipline, which bestowed such uninterrupted success on the Roman army. His military regulations are contained in a very concise letter to one of his junior officers, who is commanded to enforce them if he wishes to become a tribune. Gaming, drinking and the arts of divination were severely prohibited. Aurelian expected that his soldiers should be modest, frugal and laborious, that their armour should be constantly kept bright, their weapons sharp, their clothing and horses ready for immediate service, that they should live in their quarters with chastity and sobriety, without damaging the cornfields, without stealing even a sheep, a fowl or a bunch of grapes, without exacting from their landlords either salt or oil or wood. The public allowance, continues the emperor, is sufficient for their support. Their wealth should be collected from the spoil of the enemy, not from the tears of the provincials. A single example will serve to display the rigour and even cruelty of Aurelian. One of the soldiers had seduced the wife of his host. The guilty wretch was fastened to two trees, forcibly drawn towards each other, and his limbs were torn asunder by their sudden separation. The punishments of Aurelian were terrible, but he seldom had occasion to punish more than once the same offence. His own conduct gave a sanction to his laws, and the seditious legions dreaded a chief who had learned to obey and who was worthy to command." But I think there was actually a lot more going on than just an improvement in discipline in the Roman army. So, without further ado, let's look at the changing Roman army in the 3rd century. In the late Republic and early Empire, the Roman legionaries were probably the best troops on the planet. But in one decade, in the AD 250s, they suffered more defeats than in the previous 200 years. What had gone wrong? 
One reason was that the army had changed from being an aggressive force to a defensive one. In the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, the army was no longer galvanised by the excitement of foreign conquest. There were no Macedonian phalanxes to overcome, no new lands like Gaul to proudly conquer. There were specific campaigns, such as Trajan's Dacian Wars, where the Roman army could excel using its organisational and logistic superiority. But the overall effect of the Pax Romana was a slow decline in the Roman army's bellicose spirit. While there's no doubt that the Roman army remained a professional fighting force, and the evidence is clear that, despite its frontier defence role, it also retained its mobility with frontier legions moving when required to fight in campaigns elsewhere in the empire. Nevertheless, decades of stationary service meant that the legionaries put down roots and started to marry local women and raise families. Although they were not officially allowed to get married until Septimius Severus permitted this at the end of the second century, for most it was a fait accompli and the legendary fanaticism and toughness of the legionaries was inevitably diluted by the comforts of frontier home life. Another major problem with the Roman army during the Pax Romana was that for the most part it was run by civilians. This was because the legions were commanded by senators or men of senatorial rank called patricians and hardly ever men from the so-called equestrian ranks who were more likely to have had real military experience. Giving senators the top jobs in the empire, including command of the legions, and the legionary commanders were called legates, was part of Augustus's pact with the Senate. Under Augustus's regime, senators were recognised as being the empire's ruling elite. However, entry to the senatorial class was not based on merit. It required election by the Senate with a strict wealth threshold of 250,000 denarii. Equestrians were the next rung on the social ladder below the senators with a wealth threshold of 100,000 denarii. Romans frequently observed that the patricians tended to be old money, whereas equestrians were more often new money. Now, the main problem with restricting legates to senatorial appointments was that very few of them were soldiers. Consequently, the vast reserve of experienced military professionals in the form of the legion's centurions were almost always passed over for promotion. Because of this, the Roman army lacked experienced leadership at the top, and it started to lose its ability to adapt to changes in tactics and equipment by its opponents. And in the 3rd century, this became a critical disadvantage because its enemies were developing very strongly. Roman armies at the beginning of the 3rd century were still fighting in the same way that they had done under Julius Caesar, but without the fanaticism and discipline that had made them at that time into the best fighting force in the world. 300 years after Julius Caesar, the legionary was no longer king of the battlefield. One good example of this was with its most ancient rival, Persia. 
Even back in the 1st and 2nd centuries BC, the Romans had struggled to compete with the excellent Parthian heavy cavalry. For example, the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BC was the best example of this, when Crassus's seven legions were overwhelmed. But during the Pax Romana, they'd compensated for this with their organisational and logistical excellence, which usually enabled them to deliver knockout blows against the generally smaller and less well-organised Parthian armies. However, the new Sasanian war machine was far more formidable. The 4th century Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus has left us a daunting description of the Sasanian heavy cavalry. Quote, All the Persian cavalry were clad in iron and all parts of their bodies were covered with thick plates, so fitted that the stiff joints conformed with those of their limbs. And since their entire body was covered with metal, arrows could only lodge where they could be a slight opening through the eye or through the tip of their nose where they were able to breathe." In the 250s and 60s, this Persian heavy cavalry overwhelmed two large Roman armies, first at Barbalissus in 253 and then at Edessa in 260. It was clear evidence that the battlefield initiative had passed to the Sasanian cavalryman. And in the West, the balance of power was shifting against the Romans as well. With consolidation amongst the German tribes and the appearance of the warlike Goths, the Romans found their army was no longer as dominant as it had been in the days of Julius Caesar and Augustus, when the German tribes were normally overwhelmed by superior Roman numbers, equipment and training. Varus's defeat in AD 9 at the Teutoburg Forest was the only real exception to this. But by the 3rd century, this advantage was rapidly reducing, since the Germans were not only capable of fielding larger armies than before, but their military skills were also improving. And the Goths were probably the best example of this. In AD 251, as you've heard in a previous episode, the Goths overwhelmed a large Roman army at the Battle of Abritus by using superior tactics, such as successfully implementing a large-scale and complex ambush on the Romans. Gothic cavalry and infantry forces were well coordinated. Equipment was far superior to that used by the Germanic tribes 200 years previously, with more widespread use of swords, chainmail and spears, even if in fact much of this equipment was actually acquired or stolen from the Romans themselves. So what changed in the late 260s for the Roman armies? So the first and most important change lay with the army's command structure. The previous episode has already described the revolutionary nature of Claudius Gothicus's accession to power. To have a professional soldier like him in charge of the army was nothing short of a revolution. For in the past, while the Roman Republic had boasted great soldiers like Gaius Marius, Pompey the Great and Julius Caesar, most of the emperors of the Principate were administrators, not warriors. 
Claudius Gothicus's accession was the culmination of a process of change that really began with Marcus Aurelius when he was forced to place more weight on promotion on merit in the army in order to respond to the invasions by the Marcomanni and Quadi. A good example of the new breed of legates was Pertinax, the future emperor who succeeded Commodus for three months before he was cut down by the Praetorian Guard since, despite being of humble birth, he'd risen in the ranks of the army on merit, and Marcus Aurelius needed men like him and promoted him to the command of a legion. Septimius Severus continued this trend of bypassing the Senate and appointing equestrians with military experience rather than senators to the command of the three new legions that he created. But it was Gallienus who took matters even further and created the springboard for Claudius Gothicus to seize power. For he not only completely prohibited senators from commanding legions, but he also instituted a completely new honorary title called Protectores Divinis Lateris, meaning in Latin protectors of the emperor. These were his most trusted men. In previous centuries, they would unquestionably have been senators, but now they were almost exclusively his top soldiers, legionary prefects and praetorian tribunes. Gallienus had, in effect, created a separate military class, senior to the senators, The revolution had happened. Professional soldiers were now in charge of the legions and the Senate had been sidelined. The path was now open for change within the army and it was men like Claudius and Aurelian who were at long last able to implement the changes so desperately needed to restore the Roman army to what it had once been. And the most important of these changes was the formation of a new Roman cavalry force. For it was no coincidence that both the soldier emperors Claudius and Aurelian had risen through the ranks as cavalry commanders, for the sources are clear that what turned the tide for the Romans in the 3rd century was the introduction of a new cavalry force. As described earlier, the Roman legionaries were no longer the crack troops that they had been under Julius Caesar. They also looked different. Gone were the rectangular shields and the so-called lorica segmentata or metal strips of armour fixed with leather straps which is the Hollywood image of the Roman soldier and so clearly shown on Trajan's column in Rome and many other classical Roman friezes. Instead, the legionaries of the 3rd century seem to have had round shields, chain mail, long swords called the Bartha, as opposed to the short sword or gladius of the classical legionaries, and helmets which sported crests for the officers. We don't know exactly why these changes occurred, but the long sword probably reflected looser infantry formations with more freedom for swinging the sword rather than the stabbing action made through a tight shield wall that Caesar's legionaries had excelled at. Chainmail may simply have been more comfortable to wear than the Lorica Segmentata. Perhaps it was less effective, it's just difficult to tell. 
But the key point was that with the legionaries unable to assert their dominance on the battlefield as their ancestors had done, the sources are unanimous that the Roman victories in the 260s and onwards were due to the new cavalry. The cavalry was now the senior service in the Roman army and the key to success, and it would not be long before the army was divided into a formal dual command of the Magister Pedites in Latin, which means infantry commander, and the Magister Equites, which means cavalry commander. But the overriding question is, why was the new Roman cavalry so effective? Did it have new ways of fighting or did it have new equipment? And the answer is a rather surprising no to both of these questions. Instead, the sources suggest that it was a mixed force consisting of all the existing cavalry already available, rather than a newly trained and equipped regiment. The difference was that the cavalry had been consolidated into a single hard-hitting unit. And this makes sense when one considers that a good cavalryman requires considerably more training than an infantry soldier. To begin with, he has to be a good rider and then well-trained in how to fight on horseback. To teach cavalrymen new skills takes time, and so it was logical to combine the existing cavalry rather than to try to reinvent what the Romans already had. The exact composition of the new cavalry remains vague, but it seems that it was very diverse with many different types of existing cavalry. The sources speak of auxiliary cavalry being a major feature, in particular Moorish cavalry armed with javelins and Osrahan horse archers recruited from Mesopotamia. There may have been other auxiliary units as well, perhaps Gothic and Germanic cavalry, which we know the Romans did recruit as auxiliaries. As regards the Roman cavalry, which almost certainly made up the majority, the sources are frustratingly vague. Much scholarly ink has been spilled on what the Roman cavalry might have been like. The most convincing view, in my opinion, is that it was the consolidation of the existing legionary cavalry units. For each legion had always had at least 120 cavalry men. And in the 3rd century, it might have been more, and there were also probably separate cohorts of Roman cavalry stationed along the frontiers working with the legionaries. So there were plenty of cavalry, but the problem was that it was dispersed widely among the legions. It's also just quickly worth noting that one thing that the new cavalry was not was a new heavily armed cavalry corps copying the Sasanian cataphracts. This did occur to a limited extent later in the 3rd century and certainly within Diocletian's and Constantine's armies, as we will discuss in later episodes, there were Roman cataphracts, but it seems clear that in the 260s at least, Claudius's and Aurelian's new cavalry was really quite simply the conventional Roman legionary cavalry, together with the auxiliary units, as I mentioned. The precise date of when this consolidation of cavalry began is also difficult to pinpoint. It may actually have been the Emperor Decius who originally brought together the disparate Roman cavalry units into a single force. And it's possible that this cavalry wing, for want of a better word, was destroyed at the Battle of Abritus in 251 by the Goths. 
What is clearer is certainly that by the reign of Gallienus there was a distinct cavalry wing and that the future emperors Claudius and Aurelian were very much the men who made this happen. So why was the new Roman cavalry so successful? The answer seems to be that it was new tactics rather than new weapons or new types of soldiers. Claudius and Aurelian were commanders who knew how to use the cavalry to its best effect. A parallel might be drawn with the Second World War when the Germans defeated France in 1940, for it's now accepted that the German army didn't have more or better tanks than the French. What it did was to use its tanks better. It used them in hard-hitting massed formations supported by aircraft, whereas the French dispersed their tanks amongst their infantry. Therefore, the Germans were able to punch holes through the French defences, encircle the French army and defeat it without having superior numbers or firepower. And it really seems that this was exactly what the Romans were doing with their cavalry in the 260s. Claudius and Aurelian were able to use massed cavalry to attack, to intercept and to surprise the Goths. While infantry was still the majority of the Roman army, of course, it was the cavalry that unlocked victory. Perhaps the varied composition of the Roman cavalry also added to their effectiveness with a broad range of different abilities from lightly armed horse archers to the more heavily armed legionary cavalry and this made them additionally versatile and more difficult to fight. Certainly the Gothic cavalry didn't have such a varied type of cavalry with certainly no horse archers. Finally, was the new Roman cavalry a carefully planned innovation? Again, the answer is probably not, as is so often the case with innovation, necessity is the mother of invention and probably what drove the consolidation of the Roman cavalry into a concentrated unit was simply necessity, for the defeats of the 250s had shown that the legionaries were no longer sufficient they could no longer mass for the knockout blows that had worked so well against their enemies in the past. And in the past, the Romans had really been the masters of carefully planned campaigns, which focused on punitive expeditions, conquests and preemptive strikes. But the difference in the 250s and 60s was that they were fighting a defensive war. Invasions were sprung against the Romans. They no longer had the luxury of time and planning on their side. And in this context, cavalry provided mobility and flexibility. Cavalry could counterattack. They could lure the enemy into traps with feigned retreats. Cavalry gave the Romans a hard-hitting weapon that was desperately needed now that the legionaries were no longer the key to victory. So, let's return to the year 270 when Claudius died of the plague, for it looked as if the Roman fight back might now be stalled in its tracks. Aurelian, his deputy and commander of the Roman cavalry, was proclaimed emperor by the victorious Roman army on the Danube. But the question was now, could he restore the empire? (music) 
And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And as usual, if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to subscribe, tell a friend or best of all, to leave a review. That would be fantastic. Thank you. And in the next episode, we'll continue with the exciting story of Aurelian's restoration of the empire. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.